Hey everyone, this is Danae again. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Hopefully this is helping you study for the CHT exam um, because I know that it's really helped me have something to listen to on my way to work. So today we're going to be going through the Purple Book, Chapter 10 on Musculoskeletal Injuries. Uh, Again, this is not, um, it doesn't include everything that's in Chapter 10. It's only uh, things that I felt like I needed to highlight that I needed to hear again. So, you know, you really need to dive in and, um, you know, go through chapter 10 yourself and also, you know, supplement and look at rehab of the hand and, and learn more about it. This is going to be just very surface information. Um, so with musculoskeletal injuries for the thumb IPJ, It is stabilized primarily by the collateral ligaments and the volar plate. The FPL and the EPL tendons are the only tendons that cross the IPJ of the thumb and insert on the distal phalanx, but do not add stability to the joint. So again, for the thumb IPJ, it's stabilized primarily by the collateral ligaments and volar plate, the FPL and EPL, Uh, do cross the IPJ and they insert on the distal phalanx, but they do not add stability. For the thumb CMC, the anterior oblique ligament is the most important stabilizer. This is also called the beak ligament. For CMC arthritis, it occurs uh, due to degeneration of the beak ligament leading to increased stress loads on the CMC, causing cartilage loss, pain, and bony impingement. The dynamic stability model to treat CMC arthritis uh, aims to restore the thumb web space, re-education of the intrinsics and extrinsic thumb muscles with emphasis on the first dorsal interossei and thumb opponents, the abductors and extensors to restore stability. Uh, Joint mobs for pain control can be completed and the patient can also have a hand-based thumb spica. Joint protection and activity modification Uh, should also be provided for patient education. For the CMC arthritis, the APL has the most destabilizing effect on the CMC, therefore strengthening uh, should be avoided. So if it, you know, the APL, if it is already you know has a destabilizing effect on the cmc and then you make it stronger it's only going to make that joint even less stable so you want to avoid strengthening the apl with patients with uh thumb cmc arthritis Um, but you do want to do re-education of the intrinsic and extrinsic thumb muscles Focus on the first dorsal interossei and thumb opponents, the abductors, and extensors to restore stability. So if you think about your osteoarthritic thumbs that come in, they're usually kind of in a sublux position and adducted 
and so you really need to get them um, abducted and extended away from the palm so strengthening all those muscles so that they can have better motion and um, overall thumb stability is going to be your goal for a thumb UCL injury so there's three classifications of UCL injuries you have your grade one which the ligament is intact but strained your grade two where there's mild laxity in the ligament and a grade three where there's a complete laxity or tear and this results in a stenner's lesion the management of ucl injuries for grade one and two the ligament is intact and joint stability is maintained therefore conservative management with a hand-based thumb spica and the IP free is gonna be your treatment choice. If it's a grade one, the patient may only wear the splint for one or two weeks, and a grade two, they're gonna wear it for up to six weeks. But a grade three, which is a complete tear or laxity, um, is gonna require surgery. So also with UCL injuries, you have a Stinner's lesion and you have a gamekeeper's thumb. You will hear, um, you know, gamekeepers more often and it's used interchangeably, but really they are separate where the Stinner's lesion is an acute injury to the thumb caused by valgus force. So pushing back on an abducted thumb, usually sustained during a fall while holding a ski pole when it is forcibly removed by the impact of the fall. The ruptured UCL displaces proximally and is trapped by the intact adductor aponeurosis. The Stenner's lesion will require surgery and Stenner lesions are found in 64 to 87% of complete UCL ruptures. A gamekeeper's thumb, however, is a chronic injury. So remember, Stenner's lesion, acute injury. Gamekeeper's is chronic. Gamekeeper's is also a repetitive stress injury, so not a blunt trauma like a Stenner's. Um, so gamekeeper's game is chronic, repetitive stress injury to the thumb UCL. The UCL is repetitively strained, causing it to stretch and eventually tear. Gamekeepers and skier's thumb is used interchangeably to mean any UCL injury. However, gamekeepers is chronic and a true skier's is acute, all right? So when I say skier's, that's also Stenner's lesion, all right? Um, a thumb hyperextension injury results in dorsal dislocation of the thumb MPJ with a volar plate avulsion but the collateral ligaments generally remain intact. If a patient has an annular pulley rupture, um, then this can be also known as climber's finger. So climber's finger is where the A2 pulley ruptures uh, because rock climbers use a crimp grip to pull themselves up, which overloads the flexors and rips the annular pulley. So a crimp grip is like making a hook. So if you picture, put your hands on a hook and picture like climbing a wall and lifting your whole body weight up um, and placing those hands, you know, in different positions um, with very little to grab on. 
So it puts a tremendous amount of force and it can lead to uh, annular uh, two pulley rupture, which will be called a climber's finger. Uh, in result of a pulley rupture or repair, the patient will need a ring orthosis to keep the tendon close to the bone to allow healing. If a patient refuses a pulley reconstruction, then they can wear a ring orthosis indefinitely, which will compensate to function as an injured pulley. Uh, some therapists will make a pulley ring out of thin thermoplastic material. I find that the patients really like just taking a piece of the one inch coban or edema wrap and uh, folding it. And then you wrap that around their finger and that tends to be pretty comfortable for them. The other option, if they're gonna to need to wear it long-term uh, or just want something easier than having to rewrap their finger is if they get the, like the silicone wedding rings that you see people wearing, you can instruct them to buy one of those, but a half size smaller than what they um, would typically wear. And that should give just enough support for, um, for that annular pulley to guide the flexor tendon appropriately. So remember A2 and A4 are the most important annular pulleys to allow the tendon to glide closely to the bone. A loss of A2 or A4 will result in significant loss of digital flexion and bow stringing. Um, phases of healing. So there's uh, three phases of healing. You have the inflammatory, the reparative, and the remodeling. The inflammatory phase, you will have migration of the epithelial cells to the injury site. During this stage, the OT should focus on protection, stability, pain and edema reduction, and gentle active range of motion. In the reparative phase, or the fibroblastic phase, um, collagen synthesis begins. The OT should focus on gentle, active, and passive range of motion heat, light ADLs, static progressive splinting if needed. The remodeling stage is the maturation stage. So this is where the scar tissue is maturing and um, you can influence it. The OT should focus on heat modalities, active passive range of motion, strengthening can begin in this phase, low grade joint moves, static progressive splinting, endurance training and work hardening. So the inflammatory stage is going to be about the um, first five days at least, and then the reparative stage is going to be um, up to day 21, and remodeling is going to be all the way up to 18 months. CMMS stands for casting motion to mobilize stiffness. This is where a plaster cast applied to the proximal joints to allow distal chronic stiff joints to move in a productive glide. If a patient has a ring finger MPJ dorsal dislocation, then this will be a hyperextension injury. It involves a volar plate rupture. The dislocation is reduced in flexion and splinted in 30 degrees of flexion to reapproximate the volar plate for healing. 
All right, so ring finger, MPJ, dorsal dislocation um, is going to be a hyperextension injury. So if you hyperextend your finger, you can see that it's going to tear the volar plate. So therefore, whenever you are splinting, uh, after the dislocation has been reduced, you're going to splint them in about 30 degrees of flexion to allow that volar plate to reapproximate so it can scar in and heal. For a PIP dislocation or PIP dorsal dislocation, following a closed reduction, the collateral ligament stability can be tested by applying lateral forces both in full extension and then repeated in 25 to 30 degrees of flexion. The reason that we do this, uh, the reason why you wanna test the, um, the stability by testing it in extension and then also um, in about 30 degrees flexion is because the proper collateral ligament is the primary stabilizer, but the accessory collateral ligaments stabilize the volar plate. So the proper collateral ligament is tight in flexion and loose in extension, but the accessory collateral ligament is tight in extension and loose in flexion. Therefore, stability has to be tested in both extension and 20 to 30, 25 to 30 degrees flexion. If stability is maintained, then the patient can be splinted in a dorsal blocking splint, allowing full flexion. If stability is not achieved, then the patient is going to need surgery. Dorsal PIP location, dislocations represent 85% and may result in a swan neck deformity due to volar plate and collateral ligament disruption. Volar PIP dislocations are less common, but can result in a boutonniere deformity due to a central slip disruption. For joint mobs, um, they should not be completed in an, a, uh, a hand that has a lot of edema because it can actually increase edema. Joint moves should only be completed when the primary cause of stiffness is capsular tightness. An MCP capsulectomy, this is a surgery procedure performed to resolve joint contractures and improve flexion. Therapy is initiated immediately, post-op day one preferred. A static, progressive, or dynamic splinting may be necessary to maintain the interoperative motion and can be applied post-op day one. Immediate, active, and gentle passive range of motion begins and then strengthening at six to eight weeks. So if somebody has um, a capsulectomy or any kind of procedure to have them regain motion, uh, I would always ask for the op report because they will write in there what kind of motion they got on the table and that would give you a realistic idea of what kind of motion that you should you would hope to see in the clinic. Um, so, you know, one time I had a lady with a thumb and she went and had a manipulation under anesthesia and 
she came back, I read the op report, she actually had um, 20 degrees of MP flexion pre-op, and then after the manipulation, the op report said they got her to 25 degrees. So we know because of scar tissue development, we're in guarding, muscle guarding, pain, all that, we're probably not going to get everything that they got on the table. So therefore that patient, um, you know, it wasn't realistic for me to be pushing, 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 knowing that that 20 degrees was probably going to be what she was stuck with. So, um, all right, carpal instability, non-dissociative, C-I-N-D. This will mimic TFCC problems. They will have ulnar-sided wrist pain, snapping, clicking, and grip weakness. But a classic sign of CIND, which is carpal instability, non-dissociative, a classic sign is clicking or clunk with rotary or ulnar radial deviation of the wrist. Carpal instability dissociative, so CID, is carpal instability of the carpals in the same row. But the CIND is carpal instability between the radius and the proximal row or between the, the proximal and distal carpal row. So not the bones in the same carpal row. So if they're in the same carpal row, it's going to be carpal instability disassociative, CID. But if they are in separate rows, then it's going to be carpal instability non-dissociative. Um, the patient can have a combination of CID and CIND, and this is known as a messed up wrist. No. Uh, it's actually called carpus instability complex. So a uh, piano key sign, this is to test for DRUJ instability. The patient is placed with the forearm in a prone position. The therapist presses volarly on the ulnar styloid. If it springs back up like a piano key, then this test is positive for DRUJ instability. A patient with a TFCC tear will not have a positive piano key sign, okay? So if they have a positive piano key sign, it's most likely DRUJ instability, not a TFCC tear. Uh, for a complete scaphoid lunate disassociation, this is a complete rupture of the SL ligament. They will rupture of some portion of the radioscaphoid capitate and long radial lunate ligaments. There will be more than a three millimeters of space between the scaphoid lunate on x-ray. This typically requires surgery of lunate pinning with K-wire fixation. The patient is placed in a forearm-based thumb spike at cast for eight weeks, and then in a short arm thumb spike at cast for an additional four weeks. So we're gonna move up to the elbow now. And so for elbow stability, radial head stability is provided by the radial collateral ligament and the annular ligament. The radial collateral ligament inserts on the radial head 
and the annular ligament inserts on the lesser sigmoid notch of the ulna encircling the radial head. So ulnohumeral joint is stabilized by the posterior oblique ligament and transverse ligament. The posterior oblique ligament stabilizes the ulnohumeral joint in flexion. All right. The anterior oblique ligament provides valgus stability through the arc of elbow motion. The lateral collateral ligament is taut throughout the entire arc of elbow range of motion to provide lateral stability to the elbow. The lateral collateral ligament complex prevents rotational instability between the distal humerus and the proximal radius and ulna. If a patient undergoes an LCL reconstruction, then the protocol, post-surgical protocol, is no range of motion for four weeks, and then within the, confine, the confines of the hinged elbow brace for two weeks. Range of motion will be gradually increased through week eight. The hinged elbow brace may then be DC'd uh, anywhere between week six and eight, and then gradual increase in activities. In children, elbow dislocations are the most common joint dislocation. In adults, it is the second with the shoulder dislocations being the first. So in children, children, elbow dislocations are the most common joint dislocation. But in adults, the most common is our shoulder dislocations. And then the second common is the elbow dislocation for adults. A, if a patient has a posterior elbow dislocation, conservative management would include a long arm splint with the elbow in 90 to 120 degrees flexion, forearm pronation, and wrist neutral. This position will maintain stability and achieves a limited arc of motion while the injured structures are healing. In this position, the radial head is approximated against the coronoid which stabilizes the joint. Forearm pronation protects the lateral ligament from stress. When it is safe to begin active range of motion um, of the elbow following a posterior elbow dislocation, the patient should be placed in supine and instructed in full elbow flexion with limited extension to 30 degrees. Full forearm rotation can be performed with the elbow in 90 degrees flexion, again, with the patient lying down. Patients with lateral elbow instability, or also known as posterior lateral rotary instability, is caused by injury to the lateral ulnar collateral ligament and should be splinted in 90 degrees elbow flexion and full pronation. This is the most stable position. You wanna avoid elbow extension and supination as this can cause dislocation. Symptoms of lateral elbow instability include the patient will complain of clicking, popping, snapping, or locking, and describes the elbow slipping in and out of the joint when the arm is supinated and extended. 
The brachialis muscle is very vascular. It crosses the anterior elbow capsule and is at a high risk for tears during elbow dislocations. The distal biceps tendon rupture is due um, to an acute traumatic quick loading, um, like lifting a very heavy object with an unexpected extension force while the elbow is flexed. This is commonly caused by steroid use in competitive weightlifters. Long-term steroid use causes collagen degeneration and decreased tensile strength. The OT protocol um, following a distal biceps repair is uh, in three weeks, you can do active full gentle elbow extension, pronation to neutral, but you're going to perform passive range of motion to elbow flexion and supination until eight weeks. Heterotopic ossification. This can be a complication following an elbow fracture. Symptoms include sudden onset of decreased range of motion after satisfactory gains were being made. There will be warmth, edema, and increased pain. The symptoms usually occur between one and four months post-surgery or injury. Heterotopic ossification can be seen on x-rays in the first four to six weeks. Direct trauma to the elbow and forearm is the most common cause of heterotopic ossification. If the patient has surgery uh, for HO, then early range of motion is required. Bicipital tendonitis, it's an inflammatory process of the long head of the biceps tendon. The common cause, it is a common cause of shoulder pain and can result from impingement or an isolated inflammatory injury. The four types of muscle contraction, you have concentric, eccentric, isometric, and isotonic. So concentric is, is shortening contractions, right? So strengthening in a shortened muscle. And eccentric is, is lengthening contraction where the muscle contracts to slow the muscle lengthening. Isometric strengthening is um, you increase the force without length change. So this is like holding, having the patient hold a dowel and you're pressing into putty. So you're doing isometric strengthening for the digits. Isotonic strengthening is there is a length change without a change in the force exerted. So there will be constant resistance throughout the range of motion or yeah, range of motion. Um, For an MCP arthroplasty, therapy will begin the first week post-op. The patient will have a day and night orthotic. The day orthotic will be a dynamic with the MPs held in neutral and slight radial deviation. Active range of motion and light passive range of motion for the MCPs flexion and extension are performed in the orthosis. The night orthotic will be static with the MPs in full extension and slight radial deviation. So remember, 
with an MCP arthroplasty, it's usually due to RA, so they have the ulnar drift. So after surgery, you wanna place them with a little bit of radial deviation to um, uh, allow those structures to tighten so they pull back into neutral and they don't go back into that ulnar drift. The same thing with the, with the wrist. If you think with RA, you get that zigzag deformity. So um, um, whenever you splint them in that night splint, if you give them the ulnar support to the digits and push them over, you know, radially, um, just a little bit past neutral, and then you take the wrist and you're going to put some padding on the radial aspect to push it ownerly a little bit. So that way you're basically, if you can imagine, you're trying to correct that zigzag deformity to reduce as much um, uh, long-term joint contractures uh, or, or further deformities. So anyways, that's all I have for today on musculoskeletal injuries. Have a good day.